0: All right, we're going to keep moving through the book of 1 Corinthians. And the reason we do this is that uh, we're pretty convinced here that God has spoken. God's an author. Did you know that? He he makes lots of stuff, but when he really, really, really wanted to create something to last the ages, um, he gave us a book, which is wonderful. He spent a couple centuries, actually more like 1,500 years, writing it through different people at different times and different situations. But this book of Corinthians, we call it 1 Corinthians because Paul wrote a bunch of letters to this church. We have two of them, at least. And this is the first one that we have, the earlier one. So that's why it's called 1 Corinthians. And we're going to be in this. And what I'm I'm kind of doing, I'm calling this um, series Heaven on Earth. And the big idea is that until Christ returns, his church is meant to be heaven on earth. And when Christ returns, he's going to come back. He's going to definitively deal with everything that isn't him and his creation. He's going to destroy Satan. He's going to throw all of his minions into the lake of fire. He's going to uh, wreck death and um, just remove everything that is not exactly what he wants. But for now, church is meant to be heaven on earth. But it's a bit of a fight now. It's a bit of a mess. It's a bit of warfare. And so this entire book of 1 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul writing by the power of the Holy Spirit what God want, wanted to communicate to this church um, and correcting them in many ways they weren't living like who they are. They weren't acting like they were God's children on earth. And so he wanted to change their minds so they could do that. And so we're going to read 1 Corinthians six twelve through 20 together, or at least I will read it, and you can either... Read along, or just whatever you want to do, please feel free. And then I want to talk about a guy named Athanasius. Does anybody here know who Athanasius is? Hands up. Baby, hands up. Give me your heart. Give me, give me your heart. Give me, give me. Okay, two people, maybe. Okay, we will fix this problem. Athanasius and the quest for the perfect body. These are the very words of God. that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Father, thank you so much for these words. Um, Sharp words, true words, God's words. And I pray, Father, this morning you would help us have grace together to hear exactly what you want to say to your church and to us specifically God, would your grace do a marvelous thing. Would you give us understanding, faith, and hope, and a true zeal for you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So I want to come back to this passage. I'll just let it sit there for a little bit, like, like sometimes things need to just sit. And I want to take us to um, the 4th century Mediterranean world. Okay, so this is a map from the 300s-ish. So about... 250 years after um, Jesus rose from the grave and sent the Holy Spirit. this is what the world looked like as it was divided up. And so here' are some of the really important cities on this map. So here's Jerusalem which is still there. What happened there? Why is Jerusalem important to Christians? This is the shout out time. come on everybody. You can do it. There's safety and silence. Don't move. He'll see you. It's not like I'm a Tyrannosaurus Rex and I can't see you unless you move. I can see you. I can see you right now being (laughs) quiet. Okay, why is Jerusalem important to us? That's where Jesus was born. He's born in Bethlehem, kind of right outside, so right over here. But this is where Jesus was crucified and rose from the grave. Over here in the corner that I can't reach, up in the top left corner, is the city of Rome. Do you know why that's important at this time? Well, for about the last 500 years, Rome has been ruling over this entire area, which is the entire world, and they've had an empire that stretched pretty much from here in the Middle East all the way to Northern Africa and all the way up to England, so that for a while the Roman Empire was actually ruling over a large chunk of England, so that's why English people like digging underneath their buildings and trying to find ancient Roman coins, which they do sometimes. But this is where the emperor had his home base in Rome, and Rome was in charge of Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified, which is why Jesus had to go to trial under Pontius Pilate. It wasn't just that the Jews killed him. He went to trial under a Roman governor because Rome was ruling over everything at the time, and it still was 300 years later, and Rome is still there. It's just this like tiny city country in the middle of Italy where the Pope lives. In the middle between these two cities is... Corinth, which is where the letter was written to, where Paul had planted a church. So some decades after Jesus rose from the grave, Paul went on a missionary journey, and I think he was launched in Antioch here, and he ended up eventually going and planting a church over there in Corinth, which is quite a long ways to go, because they didn't have cars back then, so if you're going to go anywhere, you pretty much did it on foot, or you did it by boat, and half the time you got in a boat, you died. So it was a little bit dangerous, maybe not half, but... You know, Acts 27, 28, it was really dangerous. But there is the city right there in between Rome and Jerusalem that this letter was written to. Um, but that was in about 60 AD, and this map is from the 300s AD. And down here on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea is a city called Alexandria, which is in Egypt. And this is where Athanasius is from, who we're going to be talking about. For about 250 years after, I'm going to keep clicking, I added extra clicks by accident to my slideshow here. Nobody knows what Athanasius looks like because he lived before there were times for photographs and he was way too poor to have a sculpture made of him and probably wouldn't have wanted it. So this is what somebody thought Athanasius looked like Um, and this is probably some picture up in some Eastern Orthodox church somewhere. But just for visual stuff. Um, Athanasius lived in the 300s-ish, and what was going on is from when Paul wrote his letter to Corinth until uh, the early 300s, the Christian church was growing like crazy, but it was usually being persecuted by the Roman Empire. Okay, Sometimes the Roman Empire would just kind of try to forget that the Christians were there, and sometimes there were very overt, hostile persecutions of the church. And that was just normal. That was normal Christianity for centuries. That if you were a Christian, sometimes the rulers would ignore you or sometimes they would attack you. Those were kind of the two options. And then something amazing happened is that this guy named Constantine became the emperor and he was a Christian. And he stopped the persecutions of the church throughout his empire and actually became quite a support for the church and made Christianity cool for the first time ever. And some people uh, don't like him for that, some people think Constantine is the worst thing that happened, but I would think that if you were a Christian and your experience was that you were regularly seeing your pastors and friends publicly burned to death in your city to find out that the emperor was a supporter of the church and was making it illegal to kill Christians all of a sudden, you might praise God just a little bit. But life is complicated, and it's always complicated, and life now is complicated, and back then it was complicated. Life's always complicated. If you think there was a time in church history when it wasn't complicated, you're wrong. It's always complicated. Let's get used to it and love God and love each other and try to do our best. Amen? But Constantine came on the scene as the sole ruler of the Roman Empire, and he put an end to the persecutions. Now, in one sense, this was really good. In another sense, it allowed a different problem to enter into the church. His church historians, I think, rightly observe that the church is always under threat. But usually from one of two ways. Usually from the outside or from the inside. The church is never just okay and having a good time. It's always under threat. Usually from the outside or from the inside. And so while the church has pressure and persecution from the outside, the church inside is usually doing well. Right? Because you know, if you're a Christian, it's going to cost you. So nobody's um, doing it as a hobby. Okay? Nobody becomes a Christian to relax in the Roman Empire in the 200s because Diocletian would like to burn you alive and steal your Bible and destroy your life. So nobody became a Christian for, for about 200 years to be cool. But then when Constantine came on the scene, all of a sudden the pressure's off and the church culture changed. And the Jesus or die attitude of the church or the commitment to truth or die attitude of the church changed. And so now all of a sudden... The problems in the church are coming from the inside, from false teachings. Okay, and this is church's history. It really is. For the last two thousand years, the church is either standing against outside problems or suffering under inside problems. Now you can ask yourself, what kind of time do Canadian Christians live in? Well, have you seen any Christians like burned alive or go to jail or beaten to death recently? Not really. We're in a time of the the inside-the-church problems. We're in a time of um, the life of the church being robbed because we don't think clearly about God. We're in a time of the life of the church being robbed because of false teachings about Christ, not because we're worried that the RCMP are going to storm this building, force us out, and burn it down. Okay, So just so we know, just reading your life, the fight is to believe the truth in our day and age okay anyhow what happened the big the big issue of the day in the 300s when constantine was on the scene was this is jesus really god or not and a very prominent teacher named arius he began to teach jesus is A super high creature that God by his power made a kind of God, but he isn't actually God, God, God. And his slogan was, there was a time when the word wasn't. Sometime in eternity, sometime in history, God made the word who became Jesus, but he hasn't been here forever, forever, forever like God the Father has. There's something different. And this kind of thinking was really appealing to the people at the time because in their um, way of looking at the world, um, their idea of God from Greek philosophy was that God is out there and totally separate from creation and unchanging and spiritual and immaterial. And so the idea that God could, in one sense, change by becoming a human being was problematic, but then the idea that God himself would become a real human being and do things like pass through a birth canal and eat food and poop and go for a walk and get tired and die were not exciting thoughts for them. They were a little bit lowbrow. They're not the kind of ideas that would pass for being sophisticated at Providence College or the University of Manitoba. It was just not the done way of thinking about God when you're smart and educated and progressive and all this stuff. The problem was that it was just not true because the reality is from Scripture that Jesus really is God. So let's just jump over here to one of our best subjects ever. Our best passage is ever for talking about this from the Apostle John, who is actually trying to deal with these exact problems. And so John says in chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, echoing Genesis chapter 1 where we meet God in Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Aha, says Arius, he was with God, not he was God. Oh, and then the next words are, and the Word was God. Oops. And just so that we don't get into thinking that somehow we can make a way that Jesus is a kind of God, that you can call God, but he was made himself by God the Father, John goes on to say, He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Which is rough grammar, but what John is trying to convince us of is, Jesus made everything, but he didn't make himself. Because everything that's made was made by Jesus. So anything that's made was made by Jesus, so he couldn't have made himself because he was already there making it. So don't go making Jesus the thing that made things, but he himself was also made. Is what John is teaching us in the first chapter of that gospel. But as we all know, sometimes what the Bible teaches isn't super popular, and so people try to find ways around it. So that they can hold on to the things they think make them cool. And this was Arius' problem. Well, they had a big showdown because this was dividing the church, and Constantine wanted something. He was hoping that the church would actually be a unifying force in his empire, plus he was for the church doing well. He didn't want the church to be divided, so he kind of just said, hey, I'm the guy with all the swords in this empire, and I'm commanding all the bishops to get together in this place called Nicaea, and we're going to sort through this problem. And by the way, I'm the guy who owns all the swords in the empire. As in, like, the answer is not no. And so he convened this council, the Council of Nicaea it's called, and he kind of demanded that the bishops come together and solve this thing, because that can be helpful sometimes when the government <laughs> demands that the church stop misbehaving. And so what they came together with was this thing called the Nicene Creed, and the Nicene Creed, the whole purpose of it was to defend the, the fact that Jesus, though distinct from the Father, is himself God. And so I'll read some of it for you. And we'll talk about Athanasius' exiles after that. this. Let's see how many clicks it takes me to get. So this is not the whole thing. This is part of it. We believe in, God, in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I underline the parts that are really trying to answer this um, theology that Jesus has actually made himself. Begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and on the third day he rose again and ascended into heaven, and from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, which means the living and the dead. All right, so these are just human words, but these... This is like one of the best creeds ever it 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 did such a good job of telling the truth. The problem was that a bunch of the bishops that signed off on this thing were lying they didn 't actually think it was true so after the Nicene Creed was composed. Al- Athanasius became the bishop of Alexandria, which was an important city in Egypt and in the entire Roman Empire, but then Constantine kind of got a bit wishy-washy on himself or himself about Jesus, and you had this huge back and forth whether or not the Arians were going to win or the Orthodox were going to win, whether people were going to continue to, to believe that Jesus really is God or that he's just some kind of creature, but the best one who made everything as well. And Athanasius' story is the story of this short, dark-skinned copt, which meant that he was a natural Egyptian, and how he stood against the entire world going back against the truth. This was his story, because there was a time when he was the only bishop in the world that Maintained the true teachings of scripture that Jesus really is God. And he actually got exiled like five or six times with the Roman emperor, new ones, coming up and saying, Athanasius, if you stay in Alexandria, you're dead. Or they sent the soldiers to actually go and arrest him and he had to flee. Like five or six times as a bishop, he had to flee his city and go and live in the desert with all these monks who were hiding him because he wouldn't give up on this one truth that it really was God in the flesh in Jesus Christ. So a few Athanasius stories, because he was no victim. Okay, so there's this one story. Um, he's being chased by the the emperor's soldiers, and he's in a boat going down a river, and the, the soldiers are coming up behind him in the boat, and so they're just checking for Athanasius because they know he's around here somewhere. So they yell at Athanasius's boat, have you guys seen the bishop Athanasius? We're, we're here to get him. And Athanasius responds because they don't have photos back then so nobody he responds to them he's very near to you if you hurry you'll catch him and they, thanks and they kind of hurry up and they sailed right by him and that's one of those things right did he lie no, no. <laughs> and did he get caught no see he was kind of like that you know he's like one of those kids that give you trouble in children's ministry so there's another story where uh People had gone to Constantine to slander um, Athanasius, and so Athanasius heard about this, and so he went to, I think it was maybe Constantinople, I'm not sure where, but he actually ambushed the emperor on the road. So the emperor's riding by on his horse or chariot or whatever with all his armed men, and Athanasius just jumps out, I need to speak to you, and just freaked him out. And he would have looked freaky because he was a bishop from back then, and uh, bishops were single by nature and so they didn't have a wife at home telling them how to dress themselves and stuff and so he would have looked all scraggly and jumping out and the and the emperor didn't even know what to do with him and just think about the boldness of jumping out in the road to talk to the emperor when he's surrounded by his soldiers with with swords and so he got an audience with him and just said by the way everyone's lying about me another story probably one of the most famous ones about athanasius is um One time when Athanasius was a bishop, his rivals, the Arians, really wanted to get rid of him. And this gives you some insight into what the Christian church was like back at this time. So what they did was they they took a different church leader. It might have been a bishop or it might have been just another church leader. And they said to this guy, you go into hiding. So the guy went into hiding. And so then they went to the governor or the the emperor whatever and said, Athanasius had this bishop killed. And we know he's dead because this is his hand. And so they pulled out a severed hand that they had that they said belonged to this bishop that they'd sent to, into hiding. And so Athanasius is on trial for murder by other bishops. A murder he never did. Well, Athanasius had some friends, and so these friends went out, and they found the guy that was in hiding. And they secretly brought him, brought him to the court, and they brought him into the court all hooded and cloaked. And so they were doing this trial, and so his lawyers, or whatever it was, Athanasius' defense, they got out, and they said, do you guys know who this bishop is? Let's call him, like, Bonso or something. I just made that up. Do you know what who Bishop Bonso is? Yes, we do. Do you know what he looks like? Can you identify him? Well, we could if he were still alive. All oh, right. And then so they pulled this guy out, pulled the hood off. Is this Bishop Bonso? <laughs> yes. Okay, and they're like, and then they lifted up his right hand. Is this his hand? Yes. And what about this? Is this his left hand? Yes. Where did the third hand come from? (laughs) And they just exposed them. Just exposed them as totally trying to get this guy killed. Now, one of the insights into what the world was like at this time was that the court still found Athanasius guilty. And he had to go into exile again and go and hide In the desert with the monks. So this was Athanasius's church experience. Which, and as I've been thinking about this, what it reminds me of is this: if I really love Jesus, I need to just keep loving the church. Because if Athanasius kept being a bishop that loved the church after his peers in the church tried to have him convicted of murder and killed then I don't actually have a lot to complain about. Amen? And Athanasius' church, so when you're the bishop of the city, you're just in charge of all the churches of that city. And Alexandria loved Athanasius. He was a great bishop. He loved the people, and he took care of them, and they loved him. There was this one time they got rid of Athanasius and they brought in this replacement bishop and during the ceremony while they were installing this new guy, the crowds were just like, we want Athanasius, we want Athanasius. They were just chanting to get rid of this guy. And there was another time they brought in this other bishop during one of the exiles and this bishop was trying to suppress orthodoxy, suppress the teaching, and so he was like arresting people. And so Athanasius' people in Alexandria lynched that guy. They killed him. Which also gives you a bit of an insight what the world was like back then. Like, Steinbeck is is calm. I know bad stuff happens, but like when's the last time a pastor's like was like stoned to death in the pulpit? And we don't have to make this the first. <laughs> And this is just the. We don't know tons about his life because he lived a long time ago when it was really hard to make books and stuff like that. Um, But just this is his life. He's gone down in history as this really humble bishop who really loved the Lord and the truth, so much so that he did not care how many people agreed with him. They call him in church history Athanasius Contramundum, which means in Latin, Athanasius against the world. And I've heard that maybe there's a story like this, and I like to imagine it happening like this. So don't quote me on this as being historical, but this is how I imagine he got his name, that someday somebody sat Athanasius down and just said, Athanasius, don't you get it? That the whole world is against you? And Athanasius responded something like this. No, don't you get it? That I am against the whole world? Amen? And it all had to do with the body. This is where I'm going to start bringing it back to our passage today. The the smart Greek philosophy influenced people of Athanasius' day knew that the human body was corrupted, and material and unspiritual, so they knew that Jesus could not actually be God because he had a body. And they had to start rejigging everything to make that fit. Their idea was when it comes to the quest for the perfect body, this is the big question their answer was there's no such thing. There's no such thing as a perfect body. Therefore, God never had one. Therefore, Jesus, who came in the flesh and died and rose again, is not actually God, very God. And Athanasius is just like, that's just wrong, (laughs) that's just wrong, I don't care. How many times I get exiled, I don't care. How many times you threaten me, I don't care. How many times you write books, I'm going to write a book too, called On the Incarnation, because the truth is, is that if Jesus in the flesh is not God, then my body is not united to God. That's what he would not let go of. He said, when I believe in Jesus, I am united to him. My body is united to his body. And if he's not God, I'm still not connected to God. And if you make people convinced that even when they come to Jesus, that they're not back home with God, you might as well just kill them. Because they're going to turn to something else. They're not going to worship. They're not going to trust. They're not going to believe. They're going to find something else to actually save them because what they've come to isn't God himself. That's right. This was Athanasius' conviction. What is the perfect body? Jesus' body is the perfect body. And I'm connected with it, and nobody is taking that away from me. And as bishop, it was his job to make sure nobody took that away from the church. Amen? Like, there was a time he was the only church leader who believed that Jesus was truly God and truly man. And for us, that's like, oh yeah, whatever, sure, 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 whatever. Everybody thinks that. Well, there's a time when nobody did. Except for one person, which just reminds me that it's only really the Word of God to us if we're willing to be the only ones believing it in the world. Amen? If it's God's word, it doesn't matter how many people agree with us. It's God's word. That's That's the truth. And that's what Athanasius proved. (laughs) I don't care. Athanasius, nobody agrees with you. God does. Do Canadians like to please people? Okay, you cannot please them by changing the truth. That's right. That's right. Amen. You can hurt people by changing the truth. You can kill people by changing the truth. But you cannot help or please anybody by changing the truth. It's God's word. And I love Athanasius because he wasn't a jerk about it. The people who knew him loved him. Even though he was absolutely inflexible on the truth of God, it can be done. Okay. Uh, there might not be another slide. This brings us back to the church in Corinth reading the situation there, there was a group of men, obviously, who were visiting prostitutes regularly as part of their life. And they had some theological lines that they thought permitted them to do this. And you can see it when, can we go back to the first quotation marks of scripture there? Um, And if it doesn't happen, don't get distracted. And Paul is quoting to them their theology for why it's okay to visit prostitutes. All right, so let's just Altogether, realize that whenever we're sinning, we do have a theology that makes it okay. We may not verbalize it, we may not put it on Facebook, we might not write a book, but there's always a reason that we think it's okay. And Paul is reflecting back to them the reasons that they may have even sent him in a letter to him. So they've got two big lines. First one is, All things are lawful for me. And the second one is, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Okay, So they, they got halfway through the gospel and they heard Paul say sometimes, some, for some, they heard him say, because you're saved by grace, you're not under the law. This is what I'm assuming has happened. Okay? You're saved by grace, you're not under the law. And they heard, oh great, that means everything's lawful for me now. Right? We're forgiven. We're under grace. We're not under the law. Wonderful. How many people do you think it would take to rob the SCU? Just like clean out the bank vault. We actually have some SCU people here. How, how do you think we could do that? Don't you go judging me. I'm under grace. I'm not under the law. Anybody's law. Okay, so that's the theological point number one that they were using. Yikes. Theological point number two, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, which I understand means to say, hey, if I have a desire, then that desire is from God, and so I have a right to try to satisfy that desire. Just like how I get hungry for food because I have a stomach, and it's good to go eat food, and then I have sexual desire, and so if I go and get it, however I want it, because all things are lawful for me, who are you to judge? The God-given desire. You don't like God? He's the one who made me like this. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But she didn't make that song up. It's from Corinthians. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so they take these two facts. Human bodies have desires... I'm under grace, so I can do whatever I want, which are half-truths, right? And they pull these things together to promote prostitution use. And it must be fairly public because it's being dealt with publicly. And the Apostle Paul, who's writing by the, human spirit, or by the Holy Spirit, comes to them and wants to liberate them from their deception by talking about the facts of what the human body is in Christ. Okay? They think that the perfect body is the one that gets to do whatever it wants without guilt or shame. Sound familiar? The perfect body is the one that where I get to do whatever I want with it without guilt or shame. Paul's response is, actually the perfect body is the one that is connected with Christ and filled with the Spirit. And it doesn't do what you're doing. And I just want to look at this portion a little bit because this gives me some insight into the apostle's mind he's got these guys that are doing these things for a reason and the 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 things he says to them are quite pointed and obviously trying to be a bit ironic and this is what i mean okay so he's not trying to be super gentle this is what i mean like when we talk about gentleness and niceness Got to remember how, how God actually made his word. And so he's got these guys who are doing these things, and just look at the things he says to them to try to convince them. Uh, maybe go to the, n- no, yet yeah, you're in the right spot. Number one, here are these guys that are physically connecting themselves with women. Paul says, actually, you're already physically connected with Jesus, and don't make Jesus do things he shouldn't do. And it's, it's hard for me not to imagine he's saying, you guys have a body member that is making you do things that you shouldn't do, and now you're you're a part of Jesus' body, you're a body, member, part, member of Jesus' body that is making him do things he doesn't want to do. So, man up, God up, Lord, rule over your body parts, because God rules over his body parts. Okay, so it's a little bit, you see he's kind of like working an angle there. Um, the next thing... Most prostitution in that day and age in a major city like Corinth would have been connected with temple worship. You would have had professional temple prostitutes who, as I understand it, would have been the major source of income for the temple's ongoing work. Yuck. But it was connected with worship. You'd have a temple of Aphrodite. They would have women there that you would worship Aphrodite with by connecting with them. And so as these men most likely are are doing temple worship to a pagan idol through enjoying prostitution, Paul hits them with, don't you know that your body is the actual temple here? Filled with the Holy Spirit? And you got to watch in Scripture, whenever Paul uses Holy Spirit, he can talk about the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't mind just mentioning the Spirit, but usually when he mentions the Holy Spirit, he's trying to encourage the people who have this Spirit to live in a holy way. It's not the spirit of mamsie Pamsy, It's not the spirit of get what you want. It's the spirit of the holiness of God that is alive in you. And then the last line in this passage here he says, You are not your own. You were bought for a price. Uh, what is prostitution? It is buying someone's body for a price isn't it? And so he's saying to them, you know how you guys think you're so awesome because you've got some money and you can go and buy people's bodies for a bit? Don't you realize that Christ has purchased your body forever? And the same way that you want those bought people to do whatever you want for a while, you too should be thinking, I am bought to do whatever God wants for the rest of eternity. Does that make sense? but let's talk about the perfect body. These guys thought the perfect body is the one that can do whatever it wants, consequence-free, and Paul hits them with the truth, in love to liberate them, that actually the perfect body is the one that is bought by the blood of Christ, connected with him as a physical member, and indwelled by the Holy Spirit to make it the temple of God. That's the perfect body. Well, how does this connect with us? I could be wrong. I don't totally think I'm wrong because I'm about to say it, but I could be wrong. But I think if you asked our culture around us today, whereas the Greeks thought very poorly about the body, we think way too highly about our bodies. And the average person thinks that the perfect body is the one that gets everything it wants out of life. The perfect body is the one that will get me all of the praise and respect and love and comfort and pleasure I want in life. That's the perfect body. And we're pretty obsessed about bodies especially about what they look like or what people think about us when they see us or any of this stuff. Um, There's even this whole way of doing life that is sometimes called identity politics where everything anybody needs to know about you, they can know just because of your body. What's your race? What's your gender? What's your sexuality? How old are you? That's all that's important about you and that's just your body. We don't care about what you think. We don't care if you're good or bad on the inside. We don't care if you're cruel or loving. You are just a middle-aged white guy. Cisgender. Heteronormative. That's all you are. And that comes from caring way too much about bodies and it comes from expecting our life in this body to give us everything we'll want in life. And It doesn't work. Right? You want to wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, and think, this body's going to get me respect. This body's going to get me praise. This body's going to get me love. You know, you look at your face. Come on, face. Face. I want friends. Face. You don't look like a face that friends will want a friend face. Am I making this stuff up? No. No. Don't we evaluate ourselves by just like our bodies? I didn't want any aches and pains. I don't want a broken something. You let me down, body. We expect our body to be like a lamp that something Will Smith is going to pop out of. And grant us our three wishes. Except the last one has to be to set them free, so that they keep on giving you wishes in the Sunday morning cartoon version. And what I I don't want to just go too crazy on this, but I just I I kind of just want us all to agree: can we just admit that someday soon our body will absolutely have fallen apart, and everything we could want from it, it won't be able to provide anymore and then we'll die. We, we must not put our hope in this body being a perfect body. Amen? Instead, oh, I'd love another 15 minutes. Body, grant me time travel. <laughs> Okay, if I do it too hard, I'm going to end up in a ball of lightning naked somewhere, so I'm just going to leave it alone. Too much? Not enough? Okay. Instead, this is what I want to call us to. Let's just take these the truths from the last two verses here maybe including number 17, and say this. I want us to adopt the belief that the perfect body in this life is the one that is joined with Jesus Christ. That's what makes a body perfect. No matter what happens from here on out, all you need from your body is that it stays joined with Jesus and is filled with the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine living like that? Anybody? Can you imagine living like that? You wake up in the morning, you look in the mirror, still filled with the Spirit? Yeah! Oh God, oh God, all I need. Come on. It still moves? Still okay? That, that, that is, This is the biggest thing ever. That you get to be filled with the Spirit. Like God telling you, you're my temple. Did you know that the temple was so holy that the high priest could only go in there one day a year after sacrifice, and if he messed it up, they had to kill him? And if you tried to get into the temple back in the temple days, there were armed guards there with spears to kill you if you were unworthy. And now, who's the temple? Somebody say me, please. Who's the temple? You're the holiest thing in the universe. You're where God lives. Anybody? You get to be God's home. You're His home. You don't need sex to feel close to anything. You're the home of God. Who gives a rip what any zombie unbeliever thinks about you? They just want to eat your brains. You're the home of God. And that is worth six exiles hiding from an emperor to hold on to. That is worth years of eating locusts in the desert to stay true to. You're the home of God and the body of Christ. What do you need? Rob says to himself, and I know we're Canadians, which means we say, that's pretty interesting. I don't want to be interesting. I want to own your mind for the rest of your life. I want this truth that you wake up in the morning into a mirror and you say, I was bought with a price. I am not my own. I am the body of Jesus. I am the temple of God. And I want to glorify you today and hell November to every cool thought process or idea that would take that away from me. Because when that's gone, I don't have anything. There isn't a Facebook filter in the world worthy of coming close to the reality of what Jesus has given us in this life. Amen? So I'm calling you to a life of this fight. I am not my own. This body doesn't even belong to me. Some of us are so mean to our bodies. Stop trashing what Jesus owns. Amen? My nose is in my teeth. I got this snaggletooth tooth that sticks out there like it's trying to attack everybody I'm talking to. (laughs) Jesus bought that tooth. Leave it alone. My only job is to pray and obey how to glorify Jesus with that. Amen? Because this tooth here or here or over here doesn't change the fact I'm already the home of the living God. I don't know what to do next. Church of Christ. You're you're his home on earth. You're where he hangs his hat. You're where he takes off his dress shoes and puts on his slippers. You guys, us just crazy Calvary people, by grace, by a free gift, we're the home of God. What do we need? I'm so grateful for Athanasius. This truth was lost to the church without him. We should worship. This is what I'm going to say. You can hear a sermon like this, and if you've got sexual immorality in your life or in your past that you're feeling guilt or shame about, you could see me waving my arms and feel like I'm trying to blow you out the door that is not the truth. We kind of have one rule when it comes to people's life here. Okay, here's the question. Wherever you are today, what does following Jesus look like? Cuz we all get ourselves into messes. We all do things we regret. Anybody here who has not done one of or both of those things? We all get ourselves into messes, we all do things we regret. So here's the question. When you hear a message like this, and you, and you, you might get convicted, this is the question. Okay. From today, what does glorifying God with your body look like? From today, what, was, what is growing in believing that you're the holiest thing that will ever walk into your front door? What does that look like today? No condemnation, not ch- chasing people out of the church, but calling each other, okay, today, what does believing this look like? And what can we take steps towards? But if, if you're, um, why don't we worship and just thank God for this humongous gift that he's given us in being united with us by grace. This is how he's done it. We know, we know we're sinners. Um, like the Greeks, we know we don't actually belong to be connected to God. But God solved that by coming in the flesh, by becoming a true human being and dying on a cross for sin. When his blood was pouring out, that blood came to cover everything wrong we ever did and everything impure we ever are, so that when God looks to us when we're believing in Jesus, he sees the purity and righteousness and goodness of his own son covering us like a shield. And so we can be that connected with him without ever being afraid that we're going to be destroyed because we're already protected, we're already covered. And if you need that, if you need to come into a relationship with God where God is your protector and not your judge, and God is your rescuer and not the one you're afraid of, that can happen today. You can acknowledge this, that you need Jesus. You can acknowledge that you need to get right with Him, that you need changes in your life. We don't go try to change our life and then come to God. You come to Jesus and then trust that he will lead you into the changes you need as you learn to let him love you. Amen. So can we just take a second, if there's anybody here that wants to respond by giving themselves to Jesus, do you want to just raise your hand as a way of showing faith to God? I don't see anybody here this morning and that's fine, but why don't we stand together and let's worship this Lord who has given us everything He could ever give us as a free gift.